Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and receive weekly grief guidance from me, monthly group grief support calls, and the first look at upcoming books, courses, and projects, become a patron now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Just $3 a month gets you access to everything there is to see on Patreon, plus connection to a beautiful group of grievers just like you. Unlock grief support now for $3 a month and support this show at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening. What if you could improve your relationship to grief a little bit every day? If you're looking for comforting words and practical exercises condensed into one small paragraph each day, check out my new book, Your Grief, Your Way. It's a non-religious daily devotional that helps you get in touch with your heart and your grief for a full year. Find Your Grief, Your Way now on Amazon, Audible, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere else you buy books. And stay tuned to the end of this episode for a special excerpt from Your Grief, Your Way. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today, I'm speaking with my friend Mona Luna, who, within the course of a year, recognized and addressed trauma from her childhood and within a romantic partnership. If you've ever felt like your loss doesn't qualify as trauma, or that you're selfish for working on yourself and your grief, oh my gosh, this episode is for you. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Grief Growers, I am so delighted and honored to welcome to Coming Back my friend Mona Luna, who hosts these wonderful gatherings, I'm sure we'll talk more about them, called Moon Circles, that have allowed me to get into deeper touch with my grief, but also just with myself as a grieving person. And she does so much more work in the intuitive space. Uh, that we're going to get into in conversation today. So Mona, welcome to the show. And if you could share your experience with grief and loss with us. Hi, Shelby. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. This is such an honor. Um, and thank you for the little share about the work that I do as well. Um, so as I was thinking about what to talk about on the podcast today, I was like, you know, I haven't had any like big losses in the forms of death in my life. And I'm like, who am I to talk about grief? But then I was really remembering like grief is so many things. It's a loss of anything. It's a loss of expectations, of identity. Um, I mean, even like moving from one city to another or even one home to another can be grief as well. So that was um, just really, really reassuring in the sense that I can talk about grief in the larger context beyond physical loss. Um, So two of the biggest grief times in my life, one was around the time that I 
started doing yoga and I started on this spiritual path and personal development and started getting body work and energy work and started going to therapy. And I really came to realize that, um, so I had this image in my mind of my childhood being like all peaches and rainbows and sunshine. Um, and a part of it was having been with a, a partner at the time who minimized all of my experiences um, where he was like, you know, if, as long as you have a roof over your head and food on the table, then you're fine. Um, so I just had stuffed so much down. And so when I started on this spiritual, I mean, I didn't intend on going into a spiritual awakening, but it sort of happened. I started to really see how much my dad's alcoholism had affected me over the course of my life. And it had just been stuffed down, way down, swept under the rug for decades of my life. Um, so it was like this looking back on my childhood and starting to see like, oh, it actually wasn't as, um, it wasn't the like perfect picture that I had painted out, like, you know, because just because I always had the latest cell phone or whatever, didn't mean that life was just peachy. <laughs> Um, so that one was really hard. It was a lot of stuff just around both of my parents, um, realizing like a lot around how I'd been treated. Um, I do have to say they are amazing parents. They were doing the best they could, but, and it was also really damaging in a lot of ways. Um, so that was the first time. And then the second time was, um, so I was in this relationship from the time I was 15 until 26. Um, so like 11, 12 years, it was almost 12 years. And um, the relationship was very unhealthy. It was very toxic and abusive in both directions. And I had done a lot of things that I wasn't proud of. And all of the stuff that I'd done was being held over my head constantly and it was being used to manipulate me. And I actually didn't realize that until, and I have this like very distinct memory. It was like a Wednesday in February and my, my ex and I at the time we were having this like entire month of just like blowout fights. Like they were the worst they had been in a long time. And he ironically told me to look up emotional abuse. So I did. And I'm on the train. I'm on the Brown Line in Chicago. And I'm reading this article about emotional abuse. And as I'm going through like this article of like 10 signs of emotional abuse, it's starting to like dawn on me. And I'm like, oh my God this is what I have been experiencing. And it just like felt like my entire world was crashing down around me. And like, I had no idea what was, which way was up anymore. And I remember like texting my friend Lilia at the time, um, just like, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what's what anymore. Please help. Um, and so I, she and I hung out the next day and I asked her to like read over some of the text message exchanges between my ex and I at the time. And she was like, Oh my God, this is way worse than I ever could have imagined. And it just like started to really dawn on me that like, 
yeah, that I had been emotionally, psychologically, verbally abused and manipulated for so long. And it was so normal to me that I didn't even know any different. And so that was like a big part of like, it wasn't just a loss of relationship, but it was this loss of like, what is even real anymore? Yeah. And I'm, I'm nodding my head at both of these different experiences because there's grief is very much about once you see, you can't unsee. There's like, Mm -hmm. when you have an experience, you can't unexperience what it's like. And this is the case for death, divorce, diagnosis and beyond. And it sounds like so much of your grief experiences are like, holy shit, there's a name for it. Holy shit, there's a description for what this experience is. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of um, the story of your dad's alcoholism and then tying in with this partner of if you're provided for, that should be enough. And kind of this roof over your head, food on the table, like why is that not enough for you? Um, and then this other story of like uncovering emotional, verbal, psychological abuse. It's like, holy cow, there's a name for it. And I I think um, the direction I want to go next is as you're uncovering all these things and starting to wrap words around experiences that you're having, um, what, like what happens to Mona? Like where, where does she go? Is I'm trying to wrap words around this experience too, (laughs) but, but I'm like, how, um, how are you geolocating yourself in the midst of all of this? Because from what it sounds like, um, it could either be a recognition of, wow, I have wandered so far from myself, or I don't even know who I am anymore. Or maybe both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Well, I, I would say in both of these instances, um, and then just, to, I really love your reflection of, um, how it's a naming of the thing. And like with that experience with my parents, the name that finally came to me was trauma and complex trauma. Because prior to that, I had thought trauma was reserved for the big T trauma, meaning like death and um, natural disasters, war, rape. And I didn't know about the little T trauma or just how trauma is basically anything that happens. That's too much too fast. And so I had no idea that I had experienced trauma and then came to learn like, yeah, if you have a parent that has an addiction or an illness, like chronic, something that's chronic, that is trauma. Um, So it was really I don't know. It was, it was also this like loss of identity there, but also so reassuring, such a breath of fresh air to have a name to it. Um, coming back to saying about this geolocation, I didn't even know who I was at the time in, uh, especially that, that first instance. And it's, it's funny. I realized like both of these things, like both of these times that I, I came to name what all of this was. It was actually with the same year. So <laughs> I realized that year of my life was so transformative. And before that year, I had no idea who I was. I had zero sense of identity. And I've heard this quote before of who were you before the world to- told you who you're, you were supposed to be. And when I've thought about that, 
like I never had a time in my life before that when I knew who I was. I was from such a young age told this is the way you need to act. Like I can remember like from the age of like three years old being told that my skin was too dark and I was too short and things like that from like three or four years old. I'm like, you're too short for a three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing at that, but also like, ouch, to, all, to arrive into the world and be told you are already too small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I never, I didn't have a sense of identity. And so it was, it was really like this beautiful, fresh start in a sense of learning who am I? And um, that friend, Lilia, that I mentioned earlier, she started out as my life coach. And it's funny because I actually met you through her. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And I remember in one of our first sessions, she asked me, who am I? And I could at the time name, I'm a photographer, I'm a designer, I'm a yoga teacher. And that was it. I had no idea who I was beyond those um, profession names. Yeah. And it's like, who are you beyond the actions that you take? Who are you beyond what you do? And, and, um, and this is like the cocktail party question that I absolutely hate when people ask me, well, because I think my line of work is hard to describe. Because <laughs> um, it's not just like, I'm an accountant and people know what that is. Um, but also, it's so hard to untangle ourselves sometimes from the work that we do or our careers in terms of identity to know who we are beyond that or... Um, inclusive of that, but maybe more than what transcends the work that you do is a hard thing to answer. And I want to, I want to jump back to this really quickly because I think you said some gold and I don't want people who are listening to miss it. Um, trauma, the definition of trauma is that's too much too fast. Mm -hmm. And so erasing the need for these big qualifiers for trauma of it must have been a car accident or a natural disaster or a house fire or something at that level, which yes, of course is trauma or like war or um, being a, a refugee or, or something like that being a part of your story, which like, yes, trauma, but, and also I think sometimes we fail to name or fail to acknowledge the ways that we've been traumatized because we don't think it fits into like a textbook or a DSM or a psychological or even a societal definition of what is acknowledged as trauma. But this idea of any time your life has gone too much too fast is trauma is, yeah. And even just this year, I did another um, podcast interview and another for another show. And just this year, I've only started to acknowledge that my mother's death was a sudden death and therefore it was a trauma. We had seven days before she died, but that's not enough time to assimilate the fact that my mother is dying until the day she takes her last breath. And it is different from my mom died in a car accident or um, my mom had a stroke and we never saw her again. So I, I know it's different from those things. And also there's this acknowledgement of, and that was still traumatizing to a 21 year old girl. Um, And so just allowing that deep breath to be taken and to acknowledge that yes, maybe some of the things you have experienced in your life have been trauma and allowing yourself to define them that way can allow you or free you up to access different kinds of healing because of that. And that's a really good segue into exactly where I want to go next of like, (laughs) so then what did, what did you reach for as Mona was meeting Mona for the first time? Um, what were some of the things maybe that you reached for first or where did you start to uncover your identity in this year of great transformation? 
Well, this, this year was really, I mean, my whole transformation was catalyzed by yoga. And so I was able, like yoga was the first place, my mat, the yoga studio, it was the first place that I really felt safe. Um, I had always had insomnia and like on the yoga mat during Shavasana, I would fall asleep almost every single time. And then I'd also <laughs> done um, a bunch of yoga nidra, which is basically a deep guided meditation where you just lay on your mat and nidra means sleep. And I, and like, you know, the, the facilitator has you going through like bringing awareness to like your pinky finger, then your ring finger, then your middle finger, and then like up to your arm. And I swear I've never made it past the elbow. <laughs> I just <laughs> fall asleep. <laughs> and so, yeah, so yoga was definitely that place for me. It was that solace. Um, um, I was in a teacher training program. There were six women total in my group and um, sort of at the end, the tail end of that training, all six of us were hanging out in the sauna one night after class, just, you know, spending time with each other. And I remember that being the first time I had opened up about my dad's alcoholism um, beyond one best friend in high school, my partner at the time, and like one friend in college. Like that is, those were the only people I talked to about it for over a decade. Um, and then suddenly I was able to tell five other people at once <laughs> about it. Um, so yoga was definitely one of them. And then I've always had just absolutely amazing friends who have always been so supportive of me. Um, so I was able to really lean on my friends at the time Mm. those were the two biggest ones, especially around that first realization around my childhood. Um, oh yeah. And of course my therapist, um, my therapist, my life coach, my friends and yoga. So it was definitely leaning on people. Um, I want to ask maybe, a like a, a pointed question. Um, but did you ever feel or tell yourself the story of I am selfish for doing so many things to work on myself in this season. I find this is a story. A lot of grieving people tell themselves that to, to access all of these things after a loss, to do yoga, to do therapy, to obtain life coaching or guidance from somebody's like, I'm doing so much work on myself. Shouldn't I be taking care of other people right now? Or shouldn't I be showing up better at work? Or shouldn't I shoulds? Um, and I wonder if that story ever came forward for you. I love that question. And it wasn't something that I was telling myself, but it was something that I heard constantly from my ex. Um, it was like all the time he would tell me that I was selfish for doing this thing and for doing that thing. When I started doing yoga, he told me that I was being selfish, um, because I was spending so much time away from him and away from our house. Um, yeah, pretty much it was like really seen as this, he's, I think he saw it as this threat. Um, he tried to tell me how yoga was a religion and I, you know, I started like manifesting, writing, thinking the universe. And he said, you're praying and that's, and I'm not okay with that. <laughs> that's wild to me. 
Mm-hmm. You're praying and I'm not okay with that. Yeah. So it was, it was not okay to be working on myself. He was very against any self-help book as well. So anything personal development was just like a no in his book. And so like I actually pushed a lot of that stuff away for a long time until I started getting into yoga and it changed my life. And um, it was, it definitely was the crumbling of everything in my life at, at, the, at that time. Yeah. And I want to get um, more into yoga and exactly how uh, it helps like logistically, but also um, psychologically, emotionally, mentally. I was literally speaking with somebody about this last night and they were like, yeah, it's kind of hard to see what Westernized society has done to yoga because the speed of classes sometimes is so much that how can we get you to progress and progress and progress as opposed to tune in, align with the breath, like really check in with your body and how it's doing. Um, because so many of my personal experiences with yoga have been like, how do I get into that fancy pose in half an hour? Um, <laughs> instead of like, where are you? And that kind of coming back to the geolocation of where is Shelby in the midst of the larger world and finding like dropping that pin on a map almost is how I see it in my head. And so when I do uh, engage in yoga now, it's very like self-guided or um, guided much more slowly <laughs> by the, all the many wonderful practitioners on, on YouTube and insight timer and all the other wonderful places that they live. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering if you can share more with us about like how exactly yoga worked to unlock yeah, so many of these stuck things inside of you or maybe freed, freed you in ways. Yeah, so I'd done yoga like on and off since college. And um, ironically, I started getting into yoga because I wanted to, because I was finally um, in a, at a place where I was pretty happy with the, the way that my body looked. And I wanted something to just maintain that. So I was looking for a very challenging, vigorous process. Um, uh, practice. And I was also looking for something to help me with anger because I had so much anger and rage at that time. So I found Ashtanga yoga and this practice is, um, it's a sequence that stays the same every single time. So it's really beautiful because anywhere you go in the world, it'll be the same exact sequence. And each pose is held for five breaths and what's really beautiful about this practice is that because it's the same, you get to see this, you get to really notice the state of your mind, the state of your body every single day. Because one day you may be able to go into a certain pose so easily and so quickly. And then another day, it's a huge struggle. And it really just shows that the body is different every single day. Um, so it was a combination of that. And then I started following um, these yoga teachers on Instagram, um, two of the ones that had a really big impact on me were Kino McGregor and Rachel Brayden. And they spoke beyond the yoga postures. Um, and what's also ironic at this time is that like in Ashtanga yoga, there's this peak pose where you put your legs behind your head. And I was definitely striving for that. <laughs> Still can't do it. Um, 
So it was definitely this like striving for that external validation, that external result. Um, but what ended up shifting was definitely internal. Um, so I was I was following these teachers and they talked a lot about the philosophy. I, I read the Yoga Sutras and the... Um, um, uh, really got to know the eight limbs of yoga. So it was really like that philosophy that really started to change things in a, in conjunction with the physical shifts. Yeah. I, I like this uh, version of yoga where you do the same thing every single time um, <laughs> because it forces you to, to look at something else mm-hmm. besides where your body is in space, you're like, that's going to be the same no matter which class mm-hmm. you drop into. But this, um, it's almost like a forced observation of mm-hmm. the internal. Yeah. Um, it's a moving meditation. Yeah. And and I, I love that phrase too, and becoming more mindful of not only where we are in space, but what we're thinking as we're moving around in it can be really helpful and be like, wow, I've had that thought every single time I've gotten to, <laughs> into that pose or wow, I've been playing this on a loop for the last 20 minutes. Um, yeah. and, and just to see what that is and how it impacts us and also where, where grief and trauma lives and is stored in the body. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then I also wanted to add more to your question from earlier around like this geolocation. Um, yeah. cause like yoga was definitely that, catalyst for me and it still feels like this place to come home to whenever challenges are, arise I've I have practice so embedded in my body now that I can come back there and it just feels like home and a solace um, but around the time of that breakup I remember told these are uncharted waters I've never been beyond this relationship this the loss of that relationship. I was in that relationship for half of my life. <laughs> and it was this shattering of the entire vision that I had for my future. And during the the next six months after that, that the relationship, I went so deep into every single healing modality that I could get my hands on. And I think it was that period of time of really working on myself, getting to know myself, that was what actually brought me home to myself for the very first time. And I love that phrasing. I know you can't see me right now, but I'm sorry. <laughs> um, because I think so much of coming back is actually coming home mm. to ourselves because grief, trauma, uh, disruption, and destruction take us so far away from who we are in the world. And so to to come back to return in some ways is to arrive at a place that feels like home. And so it's like yoga is home, but then I am also home. And so it's like yoga is the, is the vehicle that's returning me to myself um, yes. over and over again. And that's really lovely. I wonder um, as you're kind of grieving this relationship, I am, I am grieving half of my life where I was entangled with a person who was not honoring to my home, my sense mm-hmm. of home. Um, what boundaries, stories, limits, um, narratives do you have in place now that maybe old Mona would have never considered having in place for herself? 
So where, where are you kind of drawing your own borders and bounds now to protect the sacred thing that is your home? Mm, I love that question. Let's sit with it for just a moment. Let's see. Well, boundaries, um, I didn't even know what boundaries were <laughs> at that mm-hmm. time. <laughs> um, I still remember one of the last conversations that I had with him before I broke it off with him. Um, I realized that, okay, so I just started to learn what boundaries were and realizing that I had no idea what my own boundaries were. And I remember telling him that I needed some time to figure out what those boundaries were. And he said something along the lines to me of like, well, it's my job to to honor your boundaries and to not cross them. And I'm like, but how are you supposed to do that if I don't know what they are? Um, so yeah, um, the fact that I have boundaries now is a big deal. <laughs> um, and just honoring my own energy and my own space, realizing even the the physical space of my home, my physical home, really wanting it to be clean and tidy and neat and spacious. And that was something that I, I just, I had no boundaries. I had no sense of self in the past where whatever someone else wanted, okay, sure then that's cool. Um, I was really afraid of speaking up. I was afraid of, of sharing what I wanted. Um, there has been, and this is still like a little bit of a lingering subconscious fear that if I speak up for myself, then I will be rejected or met with anger and violence, which is what happened in the past. So there's still that like little bit of lingering thing that's, that I'm still working through. Um, and then what were some of the other things you said? You had, you said boundaries and then two other things. Um, stories and like narratives that you tell yourself now mm-hmm. that are different. Yeah. Um, let's see. At that time, there was a whole lot of codependency. That was just what I knew as my normal. Um, so it was always it was always about the other person and their happiness and what they wanted and getting enmeshed in their stuff. And my value, my worth, was so tied with being able to help others. Um, I had no idea what my worth value in the world was beyond that. Um, So it also led to some codependent friendships in addition to relationships. Um, Yeah. And I, I also, I mean, it was, it was like, I needed people to need me. Mm -hmm. Kind of. um, And maybe this is me putting words in your mouth. So correct me. Uh, if I'm wrong, but I need people to need me so I know what my purpose is. Yeah, definitely. Or so that I know I'm useful or that yes. I'm worth something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I heard this quote the other day that like people pleasing is never about a relentless desire to serve other people. It's a relentless desire to prove to yourself that you're a good person. Mm, yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, I had a, <laughs> I had a real ass moment with that one. I was like, excuse me. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Please people, who am I? Does that mean Mm. I'm a bad person? It calls morality and value and judgment and worth into question. And that's a very scary thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Gosh, I love so much of this uh, ongoing journey for you and and homecoming uh, in a sense for you is untangling and getting clearer and clearer and clearer. But I can't um, let you go without talking about color. (laughs) Because something that I love so much about you, Mona, is A, your hair changes color all the time. Um, And that's like a a trivial thing I love about you. But then also it's kind of not because it's like fun and magical and sparkly and and vibrant. And there's almost this permission I feel from you of like, yeah, dye your hair, take up the space. Yeah. Be, Be a color. And I'm like, yeah. And, and every time I see you, I, I feel um, connected to some sense of play or lightness. And now, I'm, I mean, you and I have never had these conversations about your story before. I know it's very um, hard earned, a hard earned sense of play and light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can say more on that. It's really funny that um, <laughs> it's really funny that people perceive me they they have this association with me with with play because um, I was actually just having a conversation yesterday with one of my friends how um, and this comes up for me again and again that I am such a serious person and that I don't know how to play <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like but she has green hair <laughs> of course she knows how to play that's really funny <laughs> yeah and like <laughs> and like spontaneous Spontaneity, what is that? Let me plan that into my calendar. <laughs> I do this too. Oh my God. <laughs> Let me plan some play into my calendar. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I think there is definitely. Um, so it's like, yeah, I, I may not know how to play in the sense of just like, going to do whatever or having fun just for the sake of having fun, especially since growing up, it was like everything was done for a purpose. Um, I wasn't allowed to do dance for a few years because, you know, I wouldn't be able to be a professional dancer beyond the age of 30. So I had to learn how to play the piano and go to art and go to Chinese school and all of these things, all for the purpose of getting into an Ivy League college. Um, So play was not something that was really allowed, um, but I have always had this sense of lightness of being. I love, I absolutely love color. Um, And this, I don't know if this is something that many people know about me, but I went to art school um, Mm. and I studied design and I absolutely love color. And, um, and I've always, I think it's, um, there's this, there's a lot of polarity in me where I make, obviously I come across as this like super bubbly, vibrant, colorful, colorful person. And I also love talking about trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love talking about those deep, dark things that people would not rather not touch with a 10 foot stick. And so I, I, I really do feel like part of my purpose on this earth is to bring both that you can be both, you can be fun and bubbly and lighthearted and talk about death and trauma and loss and that it's okay to be all of that. 
Yeah. It's almost like um, permission for you to be a container for everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. That we're multifaceted, multidimensional beings. Yeah. Uh, this question just came to me of, of as you were continuing on in this journey, because I think that whenever we start doing the work of who am I, we never really stop. Um, but looking at, at like the timeline of your life, I'm like, we're not very far out from that year. And I wonder if you still have these moments where you kind of second guess yourself or, or doubt your own wisdom. And I wrote down this question of how do you reassure yourself or what do you say to yourself when you need to know that like, I've got you, you've got yourself as you're continuing on. Like you do have a support Mm -hmm. in the world and that support is you. Well, I wonder what the voices in your head sound like then. I think a big part of it is that because I didn't receive the emotional support that I really needed throughout my childhood and throughout my life, like I was so beautifully supported in like, like financially and having, you know, everything that I needed, um, survival needs, but I, and I, and I did receive a lot of love from my parents, but I didn't receive the emotional um, needs. I didn't have a lot of my emotional needs met. Um, and then like, didn't have that in that relationship in a lot of ways either. And it, there's this mantra that my therapist gave to me uh, when I first started working with her and it was, I am safe. I am okay. I can handle anything that comes my way. And I remember just like walking my dog and repeating that over and over and over again. And it's really become embedded in me and has really helped instill that trust. And so part of it is like, because I didn't receive that, um, because I didn't have my emotional needs met and yet I've still been able to you know, undo so much of that stuff in my life and heal so much that I really have this proof now that whatever happens, I've got me and I am okay. So that mantra is a big part of it. Um, And it's also just having all of these tools like, you know, my tarot cards and um, my connections with my friends and my journal, um, my body, my space, my time to myself. And it's whenever I actually connect with these things that I remember, you know, anytime like the self-doubt is coming up, I can have a conversation with a, a really trusted friend or I can just journal. And when I journal, I just get all of these downloads from from source, from the universe, from my guides that just remind me that it's okay. You've got you. We've got you. You're okay. Yeah. And um, I want to kind of circle back to something you said of like, look at what, what I was given, you know, financial support and roof over my head and things like that. But look at what I wasn't given. And even still, how far I've been able to go. So now that I'm learning these these skills and these practices of emotional support and spiritual support and mental support. It's like, how much farther can I open the the door for myself? Um, it was like, uh, and I have stories about this too. It's like in childhood, I was given like half a platform to stand on. Um, <laughs> and I think so much of our work as adults is like building out the rest of that 
mm-hmm. foundation for ourselves and continuing that story of I've got you um, yeah. in, in so many different ways. And I've got you is not necessarily, I can make everything all better, but um, even when I'm, I'm working with uh, clients and stuff, I'm like, look back across the course of your life and you have survived. You have lived mm-hmm. up until this point and taking care of a human being is hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the fact that you are even here right now, here today is, is, very powerful, very significant messaging for evidence. It's like all you have all this proof, the history of you have made it up to this point. You've taken care of yourself in some form yeah. or fashion to get here. So now where else would you like to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really yep. lovely. Um, Mona, I wonder as we're kind of wrapping to the end of our conversation where where people can find your work, but what is it exactly that you do when you work with people? So I work with women one-on-one through coaching and we work through mindset, self-worth, um, self-love, self-trust, abundance, money, like you name it, every aspect of your life, body image, food, health, um, relationships, boundaries. It's really this excavating of all of the beliefs that we've held up until this point and reframing, reconditioning, reprogramming it to the to, for you to live the life that you really, really want to live, the life that you know is possible for you, that is beyond your wildest dreams. And I am living proof that it is so possible. And um, something that I didn't really get to share on this podcast or like, all of the healing modalities that I learned over just even those six months after that breakup. Um, And it's like the work that I do with women is this wisdom that I've embodied over the past five years that I've been on this path. Um, So yeah, and I love going deep. I love, you know, a long so it's six months long, one-on-one, either weekly or bi-weekly sessions. And um, you can find me at my website, which is Mona Luna Love. So M-O-N-A-L-U-N-A-L-O-V-E.com or on my Instagram at Mona Luna Love, M-O-N-A-L-U-N-A-L-O-V-E. Yeah. And grape growers, I continue to follow Mona's work because there is a a possession of the self that very much inspires me in my own work too. Um, <laughs> something about your work almost says, how dare you think you don't belong to yourself? <laughs> and it brings me so much joy because I'm like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. Thank you so much. <laughs> and it, it brings me so much joy. And even, you know, I had the, I had the luxury of um, sharing physical space with you when I lived in Chicago and, and we did some moon circles in person and the, the power of the space that you hold to allow the self to arrive mm-hmm. uh, is just, it brings me so much joy. And so I'm so glad to, to introduce you to people here on coming back. And also thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story of this great year of revelation uh, and transformation. Thank you so much, Mona. Thank you so much, Shelby. I love the work that you're doing and I share your work with like almost everyone I know. (laughs) So this is (laughs) such an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so very much to my friend Mona Luna for coming on Coming Back to talk about what it's like to return home to yourself after grieving both childhood and being asked to be small in romantic partnerships. Mona came back by tuning into herself through yoga, leaning on friends, and working with a therapist. You can find out more about Mona's work, including her coaching and moon circles, which are my favorite offering of hers, at monalunalove.com, and you can find that link in the show notes. You can find my new book, Your Grief, Your Way, 366 Days of Comfort and Practical Exercises After the Death of a Loved One Now, wherever you buy books, and be sure to stay tuned after the credits for an excerpt from the book. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby You'll instantly unlock access to weekly grief guidance prompts and monthly live calls with me. Our next support call is happening Monday, November 16th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. If you liked what you heard on today's show, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Coming Back. Now, check out the October 21st entry from my new daily grief book, Your Grief, Your Way. October 21st. Grief is characterized much more by waves of feeling that lessen than reoccur. It's less like stages and more like different states of feeling. Megan O'Rourke. There is no linear way out of grief, and life after loss is not an event with a finish line. While you may notice recurring themes or experiences in your grief, they don't always appear in order, and they don't always make sense to your brain. Grief is more like a zigzagging mountain trail than a line on a graph. It's a mix of uphill and downhill paths, with some switchbacks tossed in for good measure. Know that it's okay to feel like you're back at square one, because in grief, there are no squares at all. If this entry resonated with you in your grief, You can purchase Your Grief Your Way now wherever you buy books, including Amazon, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, and your local bookstore. See you next week on Coming Back.